Welcome to the RSP Cast. I'm Matt Waldman with the Rookie Scouting Portfolio. Today's episode is a solo cast on the 2023 tight end class. It's a strong group of prospects worthwhile of your attention as an NFL fan, a Dynasty League GM, and even in a few cases as a fantasy GM in redraft and best ball lineups. Um, I'm going to discuss maybe one to two prevailing thoughts about each of the 25 tight ends that are going to be featured in the 2023 Rookie Scouting Portfolio pre-draft publication, which is available for pre-order now at www.mountwaldman.com, and it'll be available for the April 1 download, just like it has every year. If you haven't purchased the RSP in the past, it's a PDF draft guide covering at least 150 players at the offensive skill positions of quarterback, running back, wide receiver, and tight end. It has been available for download every April 1 since 2006. And for over a decade, I deliver a post-draft guide one week after the NFL draft that's part of the, of the subscription price of $21.95. Now, this is how I make my living. So if you enjoy the podcast, the YouTube channel, Twitter, or the, the TikTok content, all of that work is simply me sharing a small amount of my background research for the publication. I go deep with the RSP and it helps you go deep with your knowledge so you can go deep on your league mates. Look, I was in sales a long time ago, but what I'm sharing is low on frills and huge on substance. New readers are always pleasantly shocked with what they get and I'll share more detail about the RSP later in the podcast. This B through Z show on tight ends will be like my previous solo B through C podcast on running backs. I'll be sharing one or two things about these tight ends that I find notable and in alphabetical order. These thoughts will fall into categories of praise, criticism, lingering questions, or broader thoughts about the position. These are far from complete scouting reports. If you want the full deal, $21.95, mattwaldman.com will get you that. And if you're like most who give me feedback about the price, you're going to feel like you're underpaying. Yes, I, I'm selling you right now, but it's also the truth. Now, this 2023 tight end class could be the truth. Considering the transition that tight ends must make from college to the NFL, that's truly saying something. Tight end remains the most difficult position to generate an immediate impact in the box score. This perspective is a broken record that has spanned over half a century. Tight ends are in high demand, but the fantasy impact of rookies at the position is usually modest. Evan Ingram's 2017 season, where he had 64 catches, 722 yards, and six touchdowns, was one of the best rookie campaigns we've seen from a tight end before Kyle Pitt's arrival two years ago. And as promising as the 2017 class was, it didn't make an immediate historical impact. Now, the 2018 crop of rookies had two options that earned over 500 yards receiving. Third-round pick Mark Andrews, who had 522 yards, and fourth-round pick Chris Herndon, who had 502 yards. No rookie at the position earned more than four touchdowns in 2018. Now, there's a valid argument. The most talented tight end in that 2018 class, Dallas Goddard, has spent much of his career up until recently working in the shadow of a Pro Bowl player in Zach Ertz. Now, Goddard earned 334 yards and four touchdowns as a, as a supporting player and increased his production 
2019 to 58 catches, 607 yards, and five touchdowns while still in a contributing role. When we look at, and you know, obviously he's become, you know, a top five worthy tight end at this point, but it took him a little bit of time. The 2020 class, look, it only yielded one 500-yard producer, and that was no offense. And two years ago in 2021, Kyle Pitts and Pat Fryermuth were among the 10 best rookie producers at the position ever for a rookie year. Now, these players' stories, as well as other past cases, illustrate that opportunity precedes talent when it comes to early production. Although prospects like TJ Hawkinson, Fant, and Irv Smith Jr. were atop most NFL boards with the talent to produce immediately, I said it was more likely that year that the mid-year, the mid-tier talents had a greater opportunity to earn the most production as rookies once we looked at where they went in the draft. Those were Foster Moreau, Caden Smith, and Dawson Knox, who all outproduced Smith and were closer, if not better, than Hawkinson in the box score. Only Knox had the physical talent to compete with Hawkinson, Fant, and Irv Smith over time. Um, and that's bared out when we take a look at what's gone on in terms of their development. Now, when we think about Kyle Pitts, his rookie campaign, I thought had the potential to beat Mike Ditka's long-held mark if the Falcons didn't trade Julio Jones and Calvin Ridley didn't take a leave of absence. The lack of surrounding talent limited Pitts to one touchdown, but it didn't prevent him from becoming the first rookie since Iron Mike to gain 1,000 yards in a season, although it should be noted that Ditka did it with three fewer games in a far more physical era of football. And when you look at the top 15 performances by rookie tight ends in PPR leagues, you know Ditka heads the list with 56 catches, 1,076 yards, and 12 touchdowns. Um, the, the next best in terms of total, if we're going to go by PPR fantasy points as a good gauge, and I think it's a good gauge when we're talking about receiving production, whether you're a fantasy person or not. Keith Jackson of Philadelphia, the former Oklahoma Sooner, 81 receptions, 869 yards, and six touchdowns. That was the next best mark. Then you get Kyle Pitts, who had that 68 catch, 1,026 yard, and one score season. After that, you've got Charlie Young, Jeremy Shockey, who had an 894-yard season and two touchdowns, Evan Ingram, then Junior Miller, the former Falcon, Cam Cleland, former Saint, who then became a St. Louis Ram, Rob Gronkowski. Yeah, Rob Gronkowski isn't even among the top five, but he did have 10 touchdowns, which was the second most of all the tight ends. Pat Fryermuth, the guy that people call Baby Gronk, right behind Rob Gronkowski with 60 catches, 497 yards and seven scores. Then you had the great John Mackey with the Colts, John Carlson of the Seahawks, Raymond Chester of the Raiders, um, Fran Polesfoot of the Cardinals, yeah, from 1950, and then Aaron Hernandez, who joined Rob Gronkowski in 2010. He had 563 yards and six touchdowns. Now, Six of those players, Hernandez, Carlson, Fryermuth, Gronkowski, Ingram, and Pitts, has made, have made this list during the past 13 years. And four of them had performances 
that put them in the top 10. Now, I'm perversely pleased that it remains an annual tradition to inform you that Mike Ditka remains the standard bearer for rookie tight end productivity. Um, you know, the numbers he produced is the benchmark, and with the current offensive climate of the league and the caliber of athletes at the position, it may appear that Ditka's mark could fall any year, but I'm thinking if Pitts couldn't do it, it's we're going to have to wait a little bit. There might be a player this year, though, who I think has an outside shot to at least match Kyle Pitts. But we're going to talk about him later. Even the best prospects with no immediate, or excuse me, even with the best prospects with immediate opportunities to see the field haven't produced at an elite level. Um, you know, obviously this is a small data set and by no means conclusive, but what it does is paint a picture of the past 16 seasons um, and quality rookie tight end production isn't at the same standard as quality starting tight end production. At the same time, there's a, there is production from rookie classes that can help a fantasy GM during a season. And it isn't something exclusive to first round picks at the position of the NFL draft. Productivity is about opportunity. In addition to matching the talent with the scheme, those are the two important factors. And while Kyle Pitts and Pat Fryermuth did it, the best advice I can give you pretty much every year at this point is not to count on rookie tight ends to produce at a top 6 to 12 level at the position in fantasy. They are investments for the future. But be open to taking one from the waiver wire and using him as a stopgap as needed. And at that point, he may turn into a consistent producer. So basically what I'm telling you is don't, you know, be open to the idea that the, somebody might get an opportunity and produce at a high level, but don't invest in it with a draft pick if you can help it. Unless you're in a deeper league, say, or say the 20th round of an average league, um, and then maybe if you're going 25 or 30 rounds, then maybe in that range you might want to do it if it's a redraft league. If it's a dynasty league, you know, I would invest in them early because you might get a shot at a player who can give you that Kelsey or Kittle type of production who is essentially a wide receiver two or even a wide receiver one in a lot of PPR formats in terms of the production level, and they become a massive advantage for you. And there are some players, you know, that are then over the past few years, including this year, potentially capable of that. Now, Travis Kelsey was an excellent prospect, but think about Kelsey. It took him more than a year to develop into a promising fantasy starter. And Jimmy Graham and Rob Gronkowski, they were rare, you know, in terms of their initial production. And their production had a lot to do with the quarterbacks and the coaches they were paired with at the beginning of their careers. Now, prior to Pitts, I thought Hawkinson was the best prospect I've evaluated since Travis Kelsey. And Hawkinson's rookie year was a wild ride. I mean, it included flashes of excellence, numerous end zone drops, and injury. By year two, Hawkinson delivered top five production. He had 67 catches, 723 yards, and six scores in what was an alien offense. And we finally got to see him produce closer to his ceiling after he was traded to the Vikings this year. So let's go back to why it takes time for tight ends to develop. Most teams 
require tight ends to do some amount of blocking at the line of scrimmage, which is why Rob Gronkowski was the rare case of a competent inline rookie tight end. Last year, or two years, excuse me, two years ago, I mentioned that Pat Fryermuth had an outside shot of becoming the, the next exceptional case, and he was just below Gronkowski's rookie production. Last year, I said Pat, um, excuse me, that Cade Otten might be the best blocker in this class, um, and he earned an early opportunity to play because he shocked the Buccaneers with his blocking. Not They were shocked, not because of what they saw on tape with his technical skills. He had a great feel for leverage, but it's always shocking to see a player who needs to add more muscle and is coming off an injury come into training camp and right away show that he could hold his own against larger, stronger, fast, elite defenders. And that's exactly what he did when they knew that he needed to gain another 10 to 15 pounds of muscle. And he was still able to do it throughout the season. Um, Kokeeft is also a good example of that who did a good job as a blocker. Um, And he was really known as the blocker on that team. So most tight ends that succeed early aren't going to do this by blocking. Um, But their teams, when they get success out of them early, have a clear idea of how to use their receiving skills. Um, You know, the Saints essentially use Jimmy Graham as a wide receiver, even when he was in a three-point stance at the line of scrimmage. Hunter Henry, the former Arkansas tight end, benefited as an H-back with the Chargers, who was schemed open in misdirection, while defenses focused a lot of their, um, their manpower on Antonio Gates, who was obviously a rare commodity. Now, I thought we would see Pitts earn this treatment, but Pitts was used essentially as a wide receiver. Now, when we think about guys who had high-end skills like, or athletic skills like O.J. Howard, David Njoku, and George Kittle, they were productive rookies, but their seasons wouldn't have made the historical list even if I expanded what they did or expanded the, the list from 15 to 30 players. Um, all of them had much improved production after spending a year in the league and gotten off season of training. So even guys like Howard with the great physical skills but never really translated his game at a high level um, consistently. Njoku, who's just started to kind of come into his own and it's still, you know, I would say it's still shaky to expect whether he's going to be a year-to-year producer and then the great George Kittle. None of them would have even been the top 30 rookies. So again, that just hammers home that when you're picking players at the top of the board and I'm comparing players to, you know, to elite athletes in the NFL, elite producers, that it may take two to three, maybe even four years. Tight ends are patience plays. And many fantasy owners and GMs lose their patience and will allow you to require, or excuse me, allow you to acquire them a season or two later for less than an early or mid-round rookie pick. So, you know, one of the good examples of dented cans, something that Adam Harstead and I talked about you know, on our podcast, RSP Film and Data, players who lose value and you can buy them at their lowest value and, and make a profit off of them. Top 
top-tier tight end prospects uh, are potentially dented can opportunities. So when comparison the, comparing the 2023 class to the past two classes, I, I counted up players who I thought had enough had a high enough grade that could make them at least worth monitoring as players who could develop into viable fantasy contributors, meaning that their baseline value could eventually be at least a bye week option who delivers based on favorable matchups or their injury substitutes for starters ahead of them on the depth chart and deliver production as a result of that. This year, there are 16 tight ends currently with the grades to make them at least worth monitoring. That total of 16 obviously will change after the NFL Combine because when I get the workout details, I then go back and review specific film exposures to determine where the tape and metrics align or where I think they may differ. Still, if we were to compare this current total with last year, there were only nine players that I thought fit this baseline in 2022. In 2023, again, it's 16 to last year to nine. This is a deep class. And deep class, like, from the top to middle. In 2021, that number was only eight. Now, when we think of 2021's class, Bitt and Fryermuth had the excellent grades, and they really carried that group. They were the headliners, and it was a great, you know, one-two punch there in terms of potential. Trey McBride last year was the only comparable player to them in terms of grades. And although I had Kate Otten and Greg Dulcich as potential early contributors as rookies, and they performed to my graded expectation, they weren't their grades weren't on the level of a guy like McBride, Pitt, and Fryermuth. This year, there are two players in that Pitt, Fryermuth, McBride tier in terms of overall ability. But there are also nine other players in that Otten Dulcich range who say with a strong fit could deliver early returns as at least a matchup contributor or bye week option in fantasy and an early co-starter or important cog in the offensive rotation as a rookie. So let's go to my thoughts on them individually. Again, we're going B to Z. And we're going to start off with the well-built Ben Sims, a 6'5", 258-pounder from Baylor. The thing that comes to mind with him that really is going to make a difference is he lacks explosion off the line or powerful acceleration. Now, I think he has some build-up speed, which means you could probably use him in the play-action game. But when forced to break across the field against off coverage, I didn't really see him separate from a safety working across the field. And my question is whether he can really improve his quickness and speed. If he can... He's a smooth route runner. He has good control and, and really good change of direction on speed breaks. Speed breaks are the ones where you don't drop your weight. Hard breaks are the ones you drop your weight. And that could be the make or break for him as an NFL contributor because he has lapses where he slips um, out of his hard breaks because he couldn't sustain the bend required um, to execute that weight drop. Blake Whitehart, he's a six foot four, two hundred forty three pound tight end from Wake Forest. Really more of an H back in size, but you know, for an H back, I kind of have concerns about his lateral quickness in the run game. I think he's a better stock blocker out in space 
because he can be a little more patient there. He doesn't need as much of that short area quickness. He can he can work angles in that open field. But really, whether he's going to be a capable stock blocker and you use him exclusively on the outside as maybe a contributor, you know, in the receiving game um, on RPOs or screens or, um, you know, different types of looks with, you know, two and three receiver route combinations split to one side. What I think he's best at is winning the football in tight windows. Now, if he can prove reliable with future opportunities in the NFL, I think he could carve out a reserve role as a receiving tight end. That second receiver who you can use on play action up the seam, throw back shoulder to, maybe use in the red area, um, and get something out of him. Kind of an Anthony Ferkser type as a receiver not necessarily as a blocker. Braden Willis. Now, he's a six foot four, 239-pound H-back from Oklahoma, and I think he's what folks hoped they would see early on from Tommy Tremble in Carolina. Now, I don't think Willis is quite Jordan Reed as an athlete, but Jordan Reed might be at the upper tier of the comparison spectrum when you talk about the style of player that Willis is. But... Um, Willis is sudden. He is dynamic when releasing from the line of scrimmage. And I think he moves well and has the savvy with his footwork and other types of movements to deliver after the catch, at least as a chain mover, if not occasionally give you some big plays. He's a rugged player like Reed, who I think, um, you know, I'm really looking forward to seeing if he can develop into a more consistent producer than, say, what we've seen from either Tremble or Brevin Jordan during the past two years. He falls in that kind of sphere of players. Brenton Strange is from Penn State. He's also in this group of 6'3", 6'4", high 230s, mid 240s in terms of weight. And he's going to earn love for his athletic ability. And I think he's more of a straight-line guy with the ball in his hands than people realize. And I wouldn't be surprised, though, if he's considered a sleeper. And I think there's good reason for it. You know, as a blocker, a pass catcher, and a route runner, I think he could develop a new contributor. I just have questions about how dynamic he really is because I'm afraid that some of of the um, buzz around him might be a little too buzzy, you know. That might they might be expecting too much from what his prospects really are. But you know, I'm interested. Again, he's one of those guys that in two to three years we may be, um, you know, considering him, you know, as a um, as certainly a a contributor on some level. I just don't think he's ever going to be a player you consider as a starter in the NFL or at least not a high-end starter who you can count on in fantasy leagues week to week. Another guy fitting that mold is 6'5", 244-pound tight end out of Alabama, Cameron Latu, who I think is going to earn a lot of love from the public because of his Crimson Tide resume. He's a tight end who I think should have a lengthy NFL career, especially as a blocker and a short area receiver. Now, if he can prove that he can get past the lapses he has as a receiver due to clap attacking the ball, or he can at least overcome them, Latu could have production highs similar to Dalton Schultz if he strikes gold in the right system. But I'm not holding my breath there. 
Latu, to me, is a good college player who can have a solid pro career. But I think he's a guy that the draft Knicks and draft community likes more than the fantasy community will like. So, uh, you know, Latu's probably going to be one of those mid-round picks um, who teams will value for some of the versatility that he delivers, but not necessarily as a lead tight end in a passing game. Now, Dalton Kincaid, different story. 6'4", 240 pounds. That's his listed height and weight out of Utah. And I'm super impressed with the subtle but dynamic movement he has to avoid defenders in heavy traffic. I'm also impressed with the power he displays in the open field as a runner. I think he's going to develop into a good enough blocker. You know, what he is, is a great receiver. Kyle Pitts may be the better athlete and have more all-around potential as an inline blocker, as a deep threat, after the catch, maybe, maybe. But if you missed on Kyle Pitts, and you might be a little relieved about it based on his fit in Atlanta right now, and the quarterback situation, they they either will ameliorate or they won't. The unknown there is adding to that. If you missed on Pitts, you might actually be relieved about it if you're grabbing Kincaid. I think Dalton Kincaid could be that good. He's the guy that I think is going to be worth a high investment. Daniel Barker, now he's a six foot four, two hundred and fifty pound tight end out of Michigan State who transferred from Illinois. And I think he's an underrated receiver and route runner. If there's a future Delaney Walker from this group who becomes a second contract starter and then subsequently delivers in a primary role in a passing game, Barker's ability to sell routes during the stem and flip his hips during his breaks are assets in a passing game. And he has terrific hand-eye coordination for high-velocity targets thrown in the short range of the field. It's very impressive to see him catch some of the passes that have way too much mustard on them for the distance that they're being, um, you know, from where they're being thrown. Barker's a guy I would keep an eye on. Um, Definitely long-term. Kind of that, you know, Foster Moreau was that guy that I think could be the second contract starter. Daniel Barker fits in along those lines. Darnell Washington. UGA, 67270. Now, what you're not going to see much on film with Washington is a punch as a blocker in the ground game at the line of scrimmage. You're not going to see contact balance against direct shots from a defender. What I mean by that is that the defender is coming downhill, hits Walker flush, and he's hitting him from a position where his pads and his hips are aligned downhill directly into the receiver. I don't think, I haven't seen Washington overcome those. And I haven't seen nuanced stem work against man coverage, which is very, which is really the most important part of route running to be able to manipulate defenders. Now, I just told you about the things he isn't and may never become. But what he is can be really good. And that's a contested catch um, player or zone option who can deliver as a lead blocker or a puller to the short side of the field. And then he can be helpful on double teams or on the backside where 
you know, shielding or one punch and go is enough in a lot of um, plays when you're on the backside. Now, this could be enough for him to become a productive starter in the passing game. But depending on the fit, it could also not be enough for a team and not be enough in disappointing fashion. So I think there's a little more boom bust to Darnell Washington than people are talking about. And listen, we have some really talented um, young writers in the draft game who are looking at Darnell Washington in his 6'7", 270 frame for the first time, and they're they're seeing a, a 6'7 player for the first time as a high-end prospect. You know, they don't remember a David LaFleur or an Eric Green. They don't remember those players and how they fared, which was kind of up and down. You know, height and weight doesn't necessarily make you a great receiver, even if you have some good movement skills, because you're going to get the shit kicked out of you in the NFL. And, you know, when you have a lot of surface area to get knocked around and, you know, you're, you're, you've got that kind of length and you're moving, trying to move in dynamic fashion on a level that's not in the short area of the field or not only the short area of the field, can be difficult for big guys. So Darnell Washington, certainly I think he's going to be a compelling investment opportunity for fantasy people, but I think there's a little more boom bust to him. Now Davis Allen, he's a 6'6 player, 250, out of Clemson. And Clemson likes to use their tight ends as H-backs on the wing or in the slot or as a wide out. And any offense that uses him to shield or double team in the run game or pass protection when he's in the box will get competent work from him. I think Allen's competent with seal blocks inside to the play side perimeter, and he can handle small edge defenders, which, listen, that's valuable. That has value, especially in two tight end sets or even in 11 personnel based on the 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 play design. And he does have experience as a lead blocker, but I don't think he earns great position or a strong initial punch to be effective in this capacity in the NFL. Now, he might be effective as part of three receiver sets on quick throws where he can shield an opponent. And I think he's quick enough to work across formations from the wing, but not necessarily precise enough to earn the position as a blocker. Um, as a receiver, I think you know he has good hand position with targets at chest level. I think he turns and wins the target um, when it's a little bit behind him. He should be, um, you know, when he should be anticipating a back shoulder throw up the middle of the zone and it arrives that way, I don't think he turns well enough to earn more than one hand on a catchable target. So some of those higher-end plays that, uh, say, a Blake Whitehart can make, Davis Allen kind of underwhelms a little bit at that at, at certain times. But he does catch away from his frame at numbers height, um, even though there's a small degree of hand positioning foul-ups where one's high, one's low, and he claps. But the hands are tight enough that doesn't lead to, to as many unforced errors in the college game. At the NFL game, these types of issues can be a little bit more magnified, so he should be cleaning this up. The clapping issue is actually more dramatic when he's high-pointing against tight coverage, and that's where teams are going to want to target him, or quarterbacks are going to want to target him. So... You know, he's failed to secure high points for this reason. And with the clapping, with the high point, I don't think he's prepared um, 
for targets that are in the short range of the game that can be less than pinpoint accurate. Um, so, you know, unless he gets a, I would say, an accurate sale route, boundary route against cover two or at the back of the end zone, um, some of these off-target plays can be difficult for him. So, you know, got a little bit of concerns about Davis Allen. I think that he's going to he's gonna get a good draft stock, um, a decent draft stock for, um, you know, for his overall game, but his overall game might not be quite ready. Um, EJ Jenkins, he's intriguing. Got a Georgia Tech, transferred from South Carolina. He's 6'5", 246. People are going to say, is he the next... Um, you know, Darren Waller. And he certainly operated in the way at Georgia Tech that makes people think wonder about that because he was a split end at Georgia Tech. They used him a lot out of the slot and split end at South Carolina. And if he can figure out how not to clap attack on the ball, he could be a high-end receiving option. He's got st- strong hand-eye coordination. He earns targets wide of his frame with one or both hands. But the other thing that's kind of odd about him, and this is just kind of an overall thing, I don't normally logo scout. Logo scouting is when you basically make assumptions about a player's value based on the team that they play with because there are, you know, the coaching staff or um, recent history of past players who might be very different in style. But if there's an exception lately that I kind of feel like there's a reason to logo scout a little bit, it's players coming from South Carolina whether directly into the draft or as transfers from other schools who originally began at South Carolina. Because in recent years, um, there are often strong athletes in the off- on offense who lack technical skill or conceptual skill, who I think part of that is because they were mishandled by their staff. And I rarely say this about a school, but it's been the case with offensive skill talent on this team for I think the past at least five to seven years, maybe longer. And I've heard high school coaches in the South Carolina area actually say that there's a legitimate complaint about this, that South Carolina just, it's kind of a carousel in terms of how they handle players. It's not, you know, the way they, they coach and manage. You're not seeing the level of development that you would like. Um, And certainly that's kind of a, that's kind of a um, underrated factor with a lot of college teams, but South Carolina seems to um, kind of lead the pack in this dubious manner. So, EJ Jenkins, intriguing, but um, you know, really a guy just to watch from afar, unless you're in a sixty roster dynasty league, or, you know, um, with P, you know, one point five PPR for tight ends. Let's go to Toledo talk about Jamal Turner he's 6'4 239 and I think he's also an intriguing developmental talent that might be on that par with EJ Jenkins in terms of guys you could consider watch from afar he needs you know unlike Jenkins I think Turner needs to refine his hands at the catch point he needs to refine his position as a lead blocker but if he does these two things and builds on his strengths as a route runner I think Turner might have a chance to stick at the end of rosters as a long-term reserve with that playable receiving upside, kind of in maybe in that Brenton Strange, Braden Willis, Blake Whitehart sort of way. But, you know, I, I think that right now you can 
you can kind of just not put them on your radar until you see something from camp and see some development that he has promise of even making a roster this year. He might be a futures guy that in two, three years, you go, oh yeah, I remember him. Let me keep an eye on him now. Josh Weil. I think it's Josh Weil or Wiley. I don't know the pronunciation. I'm sorry. I spend more time watching tape than I do looking up um, you know, sites that show you the pronunciation for these players. I don't watch, I don't listen to um, commentary, so I don't know how they use his name. I usually purposely turn off any commentary if I'm looking at anything that has, um, you know, um, audio. But most of the tape I watch doesn't have audio on it anyway. So I all I know is that, you know, he's one of the two tight ends at Cincinnati who's coming out for this draft. I think he could become a versatile H-back. Um, he could fit in a lot of NFL offenses. Um, he has the potential to become a sudden route runner with just a little more technical refinement with the details of breaks. But the basic weight drop and footwork are in his game. I think he's going to tease during early parts of his career. Whether he can build on that, that's the big question. Now listen, no more teasing. The rookie scouting portfolio pre-draft, post-draft publication is the goods. And for twenty one ninety five. You get the most comprehensive look at skill positions at quarterback, running back, wide receiver, and tight end that is available to the general public. You'll get it for download available on April 1st. It's a PDF that's fully bookmarked and contains information that my subscribers have learned is evergreen and even more valuable than po the post-draft that's usually in high demand from the newbies. Okay, You get rankings and cheat sheets in prose formats. You get detailed profiles breaking down all the criteria I use to scout each position. You get a, I guide you through my defined and weighted criteria so you get an entertaining understanding of my evaluation process and how the pieces make the whole of each scouting report, how they're, how they're weighted, um, how they're defined, um, you know, why, they're, why they have value. Now you also get analysis with recent draft trends at each position and what I think is changing with the way the league assesses these positions. You get a range of stylistic comparisons for each prospect. So I'm not just giving you a Dalton Kincaid is the next Travis Kelsey. I mean, you know, occasionally you may get one player if they're that close, but I usually give you, you know, three to four to even five players on a continuum. And it's ba and they may even be slight different in body type or different in certain things, but there may be a common denominator style um, that why they all fit together. And I usually explain that in my comparisons. You get a minimum of 150 prospects profiled pre-draft. At least that's my goal. You know, maybe maybe as the times change, that number may be a little bit lower, but usually I get at least 150. Rankings from my past three years of classes are updated multiple times through the season. You get a newsletter and I update that. And then the post-draft guide, which is part of the 2195 purchase, and is available you know, no later than a week after the NFL draft. It delivers great fantasy analysis rooted in the football scouting that I did in the pre-draft publication. You know, It gives you ADP tracking from multiple leagues that I cover. And then I, I give you basically a cheat sheet with speed, um, sweet spot values. Um, and that sweet spot value is, is a number between my valuation of the player in terms of post-draft, where, where he landed, where I think he fits, what his draft 
his depth chart looks like, and then and I give you a ranking based on where I think he, he is. And then I also look at the ADP of all these leagues of where he's being drafted, and I give you a sweet spot of where you should draft him so that you can gain some value for what, knowing where to wait, um, but still be able to be in a position to take him and, and have a lower risk of losing an opportunity to get him. At the same time, there may be times where I think the player is overvalued and I show you that this is where you're going to have to take him and I think that that may be a bit of a risk. And and you'll get to see all of that on a tiered cheat sheet that has that's color-coded, that shows you who's in my top tiers. You get individual rankings with it, but I really give you an idea basically on two pages, you know, how this draft how you can plan out your draft and how these players relate to one another and how leagues are seeing, you know, the industry as a whole are seeing these players. You get analysis on their fit. Like I said, you get depth chart analysis. It incorporates which veterans have one or two years left on their deals, how I see their playing time sorted out relative to the incoming class of rookies and free agents. And then you get that monthly newsletter with scouting reports and analysis of current and future prospects. You can get all that, $21.95, mattwaldman.com. All right, let's move on. Julian Hill. Who? Julian Hill. He's out of Campbell. The Campbell Crows. Julian Hill's 6'4", 250. And if he can curtail that clapping at the catch point, I think he could become a far more compelling prospect because he makes tough grabs as it stands right now. You know, there are players who... Clap attack in the NFL and still make plays. You know, they're inconsistent. Gabriel Davis, Marquez Valdez-Scantlin, but both are starters. Both are big play artists. Both play for top quarterbacks. But, you know, they just may not be at the level of hype that they receive because they drop enough passes that you've got to give them some volume to make the big plays that they're capable of. Like that, Julian Hill is a tight end. There's potential for him maybe to become a competent wing back who, who, who can lead block. I just want to see the workout results before April because when you're playing at Campbell, you want to see how well that athletic ability is translating. Keymore Gamble, UCF, Florida Gator, former Florida Gator. Gamble, he can take hard contact. He's tough. He can take hard contact to his back. He makes catches that require extending his frame for the ball against tight coverage, and he can, you know, make extensions above, behind, or downfield of his frame, and he can take hard shots to his chest when he trans, you know, when he transitions downfield during the catch. He can turn right into a hard hit, maintain um, focus, and hold on to the ball. At the same time, I've seen him alligator arm targets when there's a safety in position to cut off the target because he wouldn't extend. So the biggest thing for Gamble to me, though, is he doesn't really earn separation against defensive backs covering him up the seam. He, you know, he doesn't have the speed, at least not on speed and acceleration alone. Um, he's not a outside threat. I think he's more of a play action threat and really maybe more of a dump off threat. And that's just not, you know, that's not high end stuff. If he can, and I'm not sure if the blocking is going to be good enough there too. I'm, I, I wonder if he is going to become a, a have a sustainable career on a roster. I'll put it that way. 
Um, Leonard Taylor's out of Cincinnati. He's that other tight end, 6'5", 255, and he's a smooth receiver with excellent hand-eye coordination who can win difficult targets away from his frame. He's a former defensive end who might have a better pro career than a college career if his approach to development is strong. If he, you know, if he knows how to work, and I have to think that he's done a pretty good job thus far converting from defensive end to tight end, and you need to be smart to play tight end. If he can do that, there's he's a guy I'm going to be keeping an eye on for sure because Josh Wiley gets more love, but I'm not sure that's warranted. Leonard Taylor is Leonard Taylor's pretty good. You know, put it that way as a receiver, as a blocker. There's there's some material to work with there for him to get even better. Now Luke Ford is a six six two sixty five player out of Illinois who was a five star prospect out of UGA, and although he's not a refined puncher. Ford's feet, his positioning, his hand strength and size make him a potential contributor who could deliver effectively even on the front side of running plays. Even if he has selected one-on-one assignments against box defenders, he's that effective. And he's effective as a short and intermediate range receiver against zone coverage. And, you know, he's, I would say he's that classic um, illustration of one of those five-star prospects who earned value as a five-star prospect early in his career because he developed early in high school. But even though others may have caught up with him as an athlete or a receiver, Ford's still skilled enough to have a long NFL career, but probably as a reserve or rotational contributor, especially as a blocker. You know, he's gonna you're gonna hear his name a lot over the years with maybe one, two, three teams and and be on the field but I don't think you're going to be seeing him catch 30-yard touchdowns on a regular basis or even 15, 20-yard touchdowns, I'll put it that way. Now, Luke Musgrave, that's a different story. 6'6", 250 out of, you know, I said Oregon State, didn't I? Yeah. He can slide across the formation. He squares up pursuit at the backside of the formation. He earns good position to reach defensive ends at their inside shoulder and then turn them outside. He rolls through his hips at the point of contact and turns defenders outside. So he's a good puncher. And that's not something you often see with tight ends at this stage, unless they're top blockers. He'll also follow up to present, prevent backside pursuit by defenders. So when you think about punch and position, and you can see that he's strong with that against box defenders and even outside linebackers on reach blocks, and that he's quick enough to get cutoff blocks against backside defensive ends and linebackers and safeties, it's pretty impressive what he can do as an athlete. And he does equally well in line and detached as a stock blocker due to that quickness. And this is notable because he's really known as an explosive receiver at the position. Very intriguing player. One of those players that could be in that Dulcich Otten tier. Um, but for diff- maybe slightly different reasons and maybe a little bit higher up. I don't know. I, there's a lot to like about Luke Musgrave. Now, Luke Schoonmacher, I think that's how you pronounce his name, 6'6", 250 out of Michigan. He's a lot like Pat Fryermuth to me in how he'll be deployed. He'll win on outlets, some over routes, seam routes up the zone, play action passes. I think he might be the best blocker in the class, and he's at least in that conversation among the top prospects. Schoonmacher um, might be, yeah, I think he might be the, I can see why people are saying he might be the best tight end prospect out of Michigan in recent years. Um, 
and I think it could be by a fair margin. Michael Iziki, I think that's how you pronounce his name, 6'5", 252 out of UCLA. I think there's some potential for him. He has some mobility to drop his weight fully into hard breaks. I just haven't seen him do it on a consistent enough basis. He just has to, you know, I've seen him drop his weight in other situations as a runner. If he can do, learn to do it with hard breaks, he just has to really first learn to cultivate a long break step prior to the attempt. And he lacks that break step right now, and it makes the weight drop minimal for the short patterns at this point. However, you know, I've seen him also drop weight fully at the intermediate route range, even after accelerating to full speed late in the stem. Um, he also breaks back to the ball quickly with comebacks. Um, and I think that, you know, as a receiver, when there's lapses beyond maybe isolated clapping based on the location of the target, Ezekiel um, also mixes his hand positions high and low with targets at the numbers. So he makes plays, but the the process for making plays needs some cleaning up, and I have some concerns about that. Michael Mayer. This is most people's number one. He's 6'4", 251, Notre Dame. And there's a strong argument against having Schoonmacher as the best blocker in this class because of Mayer. He's a technically sound blocker with a variety of assignment types. Um, you know, if there's anything that's inconsistent about Mayer, it's actually in the receiving game. I don't think he uses optimal positions with his hands for all targets, and especially when these targets require a combination of a quick adjustment with his hands and body um, where he has to turn away from the break path to the ball. And this includes targets arriving behind the break or jump backs. So Mayer is going to be considered a top prospect who can win in these situations. Up the seam, you know, he's going to be um, counted on as a wide receiver in a tight ends package. But if you're not able to have very clean and consistent technique on some of these high-end routes and high-end targets that are, that are difficult but makeable in the NFL and you want and needed to be counted on, there's, there's reason why maybe Dalton Kincaid has a better argument as TE1 on the receiving level than Mayer. Doesn't mean Mayer's not a fine prospect. I think he's going to be a good player. Um, and I think that there's, you know, he's certainly among the top two to three, without a doubt. Um, you know, good receiver, just not sure he's a great receiver. Dalton Kincaid is a potential to be a great receiver. Payne Durham, 6'5", 258, out of Purdue. He will be great as a second tight end who helps with double teams, cut off blocks on the backside, reach blocks on the front side, and then with shallow routes as a pass protector who leaks out late. Um, he has great short area quickness as a blocker and a short area receiver. I'm just concerned that he lacks the desirable bend in his knees and hips to anchor as a blocker in addition to executing hard breaks with routes that are important with stop routes and certain short area and intermediate routes. If he can prove that he can address this, his contested catch skills and short area quickness could be enough for him to be more than a second option on the depth chart. Think Dalton Schultz. like He 
he could be a better version of Dalton Schultz as a receiver. Um, Sam Laporta out of Iowa, 6'4", 249. He's a good receiver. He makes difficult catches. But I don't see him sustaining his con- um, his his um, sustaining his control of the ball after the contact if the ball he's catching is away from his frame. He catches the ball well near his frame with when there's contact at his back or he's facing tight coverage. So if he can prove effective when he has to catch the ball away from his frame with con- imminent contact, I think he can become an important component for an NFL passing game. He has that kind of upside. Tucker Craft is a guy that is going to be the scouts. He's going to be like a scout's pet. He's 6'5", 255 out of South Carolina, South Dakota State, excuse me. And uh, Kraft's hand positions at the catch point were all over the place last year, or 2021. Um, too loose, too wide. But this year, his hand positions at the catch point are much tighter, much more uniform. He's reduced the clap attacking to a minimum. And while some of that's still there, and I think it's going to impact him when targeted on intermediate routes with high-velocity throws or he's facing impending contact, that's still going to plague him a bit. And he's going to have to clean that up a little bit more. But he's made progress enough um, that I would say, you know, there's reason to believe he could become an excellent player. Um the hand's still too wide when he has to reach against the grain for his break to the ball. But his high point technique used to be a problem. Now it's almost excellent in terms of what it should look like. He, I think, Again, I think he's going to be a favor of the scouting community because of his potential as a blocker and a receiver. He's going to be that, that guy that you know day two or early day three, people are like, oh yeah, that was a great pick. And if he gets picked earlier, they're going to, you're going to hear scouts wax poetic or people, you know, quote scouts waxing poetic about him. Now we're down to the last two. Will Mallory, 6'5", 245 out of Miami, where he's going to be asked to be a finesse blocker on the backside as a part of double teams or as the front side shield blocker who runs edge defenders around the play or as a stock blocker. He's going to work fine. He's going to work out fine just doing that. He has a really smooth attack of targets wide of his frame. When he's on the run and using overhand position, that's he gets his hands tight before his hands meet the ball. So there's some nice refinement with his hands position attacking the ball. And he extends well with underhand technique, technique for targets away from his frame and at knee height. And he catches the ball at his back hip, behind his brake path, underhand position extended from his frame. He's got mobility at the catch point, functional mobility that makes him smooth. He makes leaping high points, jump throughs for the ball with trail coverage tight to him. He secures the ball tight enough to his frame um, to get away from the reach of the opponent. Um, So overall, very technically refined pass catcher. Not not going to say, you know, route running limited in certain ways, blocker limited in certain ways, pass catcher. Listen, it doesn't happen often, but... Once in four games, I saw him clap attack a target once. And he still caught it. And he took a hit to the chest in that facet. It was the only true technique lapse with his hands that I charted, um, you know, with him. Now, I watched more games than that. And, I'm, and I'm, you know, and there were some that were, were there, but not very often. I'll just say very rarely does he have a lapse with his technique. 
Let's round this out with Zach Kuntz. I think it's Zach Kuntz. 6'8", 245, Old Dominion. Mike Giusecki, Kobe Fleener. Those are guys kind of that I thought had that kind of build that Kuntz has and a little bit of that movement style. And I wouldn't say that's a complimentary thing right now, kind of ungainly, even though they might test well. Um, you know, in, in the way that I just spoke, you know how I just gave that question mark? Like, I'm not sure. Yeah, that's kind of his game right now. He looks athletic. He should be athletic. Doesn't necessarily always translate to the field. Yeah, annoying, right? You know, have some confidence. Kuntz defaults to underhand position with targets at the numbers. He claps his hands onto the ball rather than using overhand position away from his frame. And when he drops passes, he's usually clap attacking on the ball and failing to fully secure it. And he loses control after initially getting his hands on the ball. And he, he just has difficulty moving it uh, under his arm. Um, he's also extending his arms with over underhand technique when he should be using overhand technique. He gets caught correcting this tendency mid-attack, and then he doesn't reach the ball. So Kuntz has some work to do as a pass catcher. Like he needs, he needs extended time with a jug machine and with someone willing to throw balls to him at selected spots and have him work on ingraining what position to use and using the a refined version of that position so he's not clap attacking on the ball. So that's it for the tight end B through Z podcast. I'll be, um, you know, I'm wrapping up wide receivers right now. Um, and then I'll be writing the rookie scouting portfolio in March. So stay tuned. I'll have a quarterback and a running back version of this, um, or excuse me, a quarterback and a wide receiver version of this. Um, and I believe we'll even have players with A in their names. So we may have wide receiver um, and quarterback A through Z um, pot solo casts before April or just after April 1st, depending on how busy I am and how my deadline is um, going. So thanks again for listening. Again, Rookie Scouting Portfolio available at mattwaldman.com. And if what I shared with you doesn't convince you, listen, Guys like Will Hewlett, who um, you know, coach folks like Anthony Richardson, Tyson Bajant, um, Brock Purdy before the draft, you know, has you know said you know the RSP has intelligent breakdowns. It's a really, uh, it's a nice product, and he's had me, you know, deliver scouting reports to players that he's working with, so that he could have something to look at with the film and you know, get another opinion with it. He's done that with me and he's done that with QB school. Um, you know, JTO Sullivan. So I'm honored to be in that company in terms of being asked to the dance to do that kind of work. Um, and the RSP is one of the two most purchased, um, independent draft guides out there by NFL people, according to, um, recruiting directors like Alex Brown, who meets with these guys on a weekly basis and knows what they're purchasing. And so, uh, you know, rooted in NFL type of or football rooted in football and uh, you get a fantasy writer also of over 20 years experience doing this work um, so you get the best of both worlds and that's in that essence hope you guys have a wonderful week thanks again for listening see you next time